Radio Gag, the Gays Against Guns show. Prepare to gag, yeah. Good evening, everybody, and thank you for tuning in today. Happy Valentine's Day. In the spirit and action of love, Gays Against Guns welcomes you to our Radio Gag special broadcast, Voices from Parkland. Today, we honor with loving action those lost and wounded in the senseless, preventable, horrifying shooting at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School in Parkland, Florida on Valentine's Day in 2018. Our broken hearts and support go out to the 17 families of those who lost dear ones, to the 17 wounded who survived, and to the entire community at MSD. I'm Sarah Germain Lilly. And I'm Ty Kersley. On today's show, we feature authors and activists who have taken action to end the gun violence epidemic we are experiencing in America. Writers Sarah Lerner, teacher, survivor of the Parkland shooting, and editor of Parkland Speaks, an anthology of writing by survivors of the shooting, and Dave Cullen, best-selling author of Parkland, Birth of a Movement. Sarah Lerner will be joined first by Kat Tibbetts, who will read her work from Parkland Speaks, then by Abby Clements and Sari Beth Rosenberg, founders of Teachers Unified Against Gun Violence. This day of action wouldn't be complete without action from Manuel Oliver, father of Joaquin Oliver and Igor Volsky of Guns Down America, who are in Washington, D.C. and pushing our government to declare war on gun violence. And Gays Against Guns will call in from their local action in New York City. And we'll wrap up the special with best-selling author Dave Cullen on his writing about Columbine and Parkland. Dave's book, Parkland, Birth of a Movement, will be available as a premium for those who call in during the show to make a donation to WBAI. And you can do that right now at give to WBAI.org or call 212-209-2950 make a donation and there is a book uh, Parkland Birth of a Movement available for you and now our radio gag interview with Parkland survivors and activists oh listeners here we are with Sarah Lerner and with Kat Tibbetts we're going to be talking today about the book Parkland Speaks We know that today is an anniversary, but it's really a day to celebrate the kind of action that we can take to reduce deaths and injuries from firearms here in our country where this has become an epidemic. So we welcome you to the show. Uh, Sarah, why don't you introduce yourself and tell us uh, something about the book, and then I'll ask you some questions. Sure. Thank you for having me. So I am Sarah Lerner. I am a teacher at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School in Parkland, Florida. I have been teaching for 20 years and I have been at Stoneman Douglas for eight years. I was on campus on February 14th, 2018. Um, I was in my classroom for about three hours until the SWAT team let us out with 15 students. And I think it was late March, late March, early April. I was contacted by the senior editor at Random House Publishing, and she asked if I would be interested in compiling an anthology of student artwork and photography and writing related to the shooting at our school. And I jumped on it immediately and asked students of mine who, you know, I thought would be willing to share their experience and, you know, participate in the book. And I started with my yearbook staff because I knew they were in the throes of it, working on finishing the 2018 yearbook. And then I branched out to my English classes, my senior English classes, and my intro to journalism, and then widened the net a little more to 
the uh, art and creative writing students. And I, so I'm just so honored and humbled that they all trusted me with something so intimate and so, you know, something that was so traumatizing to them. And, you know, hey, do you want to participate in a book? Do you want to share something? Sure, Mrs. Lerner, what do you need? Okay. Like, just to be so trusting and to, you know, to know that I would handle handle it with dignity and respect. It's just, it's very humbling as an educator. Anytime students open up personally to you, but even more so when it's about something so horrible. And I could not be prouder of the kids who are all adults now, but the kids and what they submitted and how mature and unbelievable all of the work is. So we know that we have one of the former students here. Can you introduce her? Nothing would give me more pleasure. So I would love to introduce Kat Tibbetts, who I had all four years of high school. She started in my intro to journalism class, came on to the yearbook staff, eventually went on to become content editor and editor-in-chief and is just an unbelievably wonderful human being who I love very much. Uh, she is she was a sophomore at the time and graduated from Stoneman Douglas in 2020, right as COVID started. So not only did she and her classmates lose their high school experience because of the shooting, but then doubly because of COVID. But she is living her best life in college at Boston University. And I could not be prouder of the young woman she has become. Thank you for being with us, Kat. Uh, we're excited to hear what you're going to read today. Thank you. I'm excited to, to read it. So I, after the shooting, was kind of hitting a roadblock, I think, with how I wanted to deal with it, how I wanted to kind of heal from that. And I was a writer on Learner's Yearbook staff. And writing had always been something so special to me. Ever since I was a little kid, I enjoyed really reading um, any book that I could get my hands on. And writing was so therapeutic for me. I enjoyed it so much. And after maybe um, a month or two of just not really knowing how to deal, how to cope, I ended up writing um, two different poems, actually. The first one was titled Case Number 1800-1958-CF10A, which was the case number of the shooter after he was arrested. And then the other one was titled All Over Again. Both of them are very different. Um, case number kind of dealt more with my anger and just complete disbelief, you know, at what happened um, all over again, documents the very first day that we actually went back to school after we got two weeks off after the shooting. It was, I think that day is like cemented into my brain with how momentous it was. And I remember I went through the day at the very end of it, I got home and I was like, I, I need to write about it. Like, this is something that I want to write about. So those are the, that's the background for both of them. Um, I can read case number first, as it was the first one that I wrote. Awesome. I don't say your name. You don't exist. You don't exist. You don't exist. I go deaf when you're on the tip of someone else's tongue. The value of those words drain me as if oxygen is being depleted from my lungs. And the memory of you is still as sharp and crisp as paper. The plastic hasn't even been ripped off yet. Has it been three months? Because it feels like three years. It feels like three seconds. I go blind when your face is on a screen. I prefer simply darkness now, where at least I can find comfort in that familiarity. There are no snaps, no twists, no surprises with darkness. It's constant. And you're just another stranger, just another combination of shamelessness and evil. 
and maybe I have seen you before. You look different. Is that a new mask? I go mute when you're brought up in a conversation. My thoughts jumble like puzzle pieces, except nothing fits. I can never put two and two together. I wish I didn't know you, and I wish no one knew you. I wish there remained the same amount of people in my first period. My wishes have been proven fruitless. Are you happy? Because people know you. Thousands do. I don't say your name, because you don't exist. You don't exist. You don't exist. That is so powerful, Kath. Oh, thank you. <laughs> I'm just okay. meeting with everything you're saying about writing. Yeah. Uh, this is all over again. Cameras, interviewers, microphones. To think I was simply hurrying down a sidewalk, my two friends on either side of me, nerves racking my entire body. My feet moved of their own accord. My hands shook as the boy beside me explained to a cameraman following us that he was simply happy to be back and begin the healing process. I was just walking to school from the parking lot, but the 10-minute journey there felt like I was on the set of a movie, and I was just another extra in the background of an important scene. It just so happened to be a crime scene. Roses, hugs, posters. The support was overwhelming, suffocating. Every time I inhaled, there was someone handing me a gift. Their words thrown in my face or shoved down my throat. Love was finally tangible. Love was finally something I could hold in my hands. My arms were filled with Play-Doh, bears, flowers, stress balls, coloring book pages. Therapy dogs roamed the hallways with their respective owners, students throwing themselves at them, excited to pet the animals. We all just wanted to be happy again, and we would take it back in any form that we could. Tears. Silence. Darkness. What is strength? Was it shown there that day? Because I don't know. My teachers cried harder than I thought any adult could, angry that children had to experience something of this magnitude. My classmates and I felt the empty spot in our room, a vacant chair that should have been filled. As I left campus that day, earlier than usual, of course, because how could I even be there for longer than a few hours, I felt the wave of guilt just crash over me. I got to go back, and 17 others did not. I have the chance to live my life, to heal. 17 others do not. Thank you, Kat, for sharing that. Yeah, of course. Kat, do you... Yeah. Um, so afterward, after the, po the releasing all of that and being a part of Parkland Space was honestly, you know, such a privilege. Um, and I'm glad that Lerner reached out to me, of course. Um, ever since then, I, I've kind of felt like I actually struggled a little bit with my relationship with the writing. I think I kind of did Parkland Speaks. I released, I, you know, writing helped me through the worst moment of my life. And now I think I struggle a little bit to kind of detach my love for writing and my passion for that area from the shooting because now I connect it so easily with each other. Um, but journalism is always something that I've enjoyed. It's always something that I will enjoy. Right now, I am a sophomore at Boston University. I current uh, My freshman year last year, I wrote for her campus, which is basically just a female-led um, writing organization on campus. And writing through there actually helped me so much. I had a piece that I wrote um, talking about how I used writing and music to overcome my issues and overcome everything that I've gone through, through her campus, which was amazing. But currently, I am vice president of finance of Pride in Business, which is actually a queer networking organization in my business school because I am a business major. And even through there, I think one of the best ways you can really take action. And, you know, all of us are just one person. I truly believe that, you know, we are as individuals somewhat limited in what we can do. But I think there's absolutely something that everyone can do. And I think to talk about it and to just bring awareness of it alone is already so monumental. Um, I have people who will ask me about Valentine's Day and what my plans are. And I will be, I will say, you know, I don't celebrate it. I, you know, honestly, one of the worst days of my life. I'm not at a place yet where I can celebrate because, you know, I was in that school shooting and everyone always knows what I'm talking about. And I think them meeting someone who was there for the first time really puts it into perspective that we are real people. We, you know, there were, 
I would say 3,500 of us. And out of, you know, a country of how many people to meet someone who was there, to meet someone, it really puts it into perspective, okay, school shootings happen. And I'm looking at someone who was in one right now. And I will never be on the other side of that because I wasn't a shooting, but I think talking about it and putting it into perspective, yeah, school shootings happen. And you are looking at someone who is in one and there are going to be so many people you meet throughout your life who are in one or who were involved in any sort of gun violence activity because it is so common. And I think for people who don't know that or haven't gone through something like that, it's very hard to rationalize it or put into perspective or really understand the magnitude of what gun violence does to communities and what it does to individuals. And so I think for me, I think just talking about it already and mentioning it and not being afraid to bring it up and kind of be like, yeah, that happened because it happens all the time is so, so important. I think it's something that me and a lot of my friends and my classmates from um, Stoneman Douglas continue to do. I think everyone I talk to isn't afraid to mention it um, if need be. I know we don't really like the attention from it. We don't like the invasive questions, but I truly think that bringing it up and not being afraid to say that it happened to you is a good step in trying to bring awareness and talk about gun violence and talk about different ways that we can stop it. And whether that's through bringing awareness through talking or through writing or through political action, um, it's so, so important to just start there. So powerful. Sorry if I ranted. (laughs) Oh, that was great. And I think really, well, first of all, the power of writing, right? Um, the power of writing and how that has a lasting effect. And then the power of your words and your interactions and your ability to create a new reality for others that includes everyone who has been involved in a shooting. To bring that home, that's totally so, so, so powerful, Kat. And it's got to affect the change that we're looking for. So thank you, thank you, thank you. You're listening to Radio Gag, the Gays Against Guns show. Voices from Parkland special. Here on listener-sponsored commercial free radio, WBAI 99.5 FM. You can hear us, Radio Gag, every Tuesday at 2.30 p.m., bringing you the latest in gun violence prevention movement news. And next, the founding teachers of Teachers Unified to End Gun Violence, talk with Sarah Lerner. This is our Parkland Action Show, and we are here with Sarah Lerner, who is a teacher and a survivor of the horrible shootings in Parkland, Florida. Uh, We're here with two other educators who have experiences, and I'm going to let Sarah introduce them. I hope you're going to be inspired to to action by what you hear today from these educators. So, uh, Sarah, take it away. Sure. So I would like to start by introducing Abby Clements, who was a teacher at Sandy Hook when that terrible tragedy took place. And she has been at the core of my healing. I know I say, I say this every time, but I don't know where I would be if I didn't have her guidance and support and just, you know, love in general. Um, She's been checking in on me every day leading up to the anniversary, which of course I appreciate. And our other friend to make this, our other friend is Sari Beth Rosenberg, who is a teacher in New York City. And she teaches AP US history and US history. And she 
thankfully is not a gun violence survivor. However, she has students who have been impacted by it and she has devoted her life to being an outspoken activist, which we appreciate. So the three of us are, um, I am honored to call them my friends and my sisters, but I'm even more honored to be able to work alongside them in this very necessary space of giving a teacher voice in the gun violence prevention movement. Wonderful. So I would love for you to talk about um, how teachers and other professionals can make a difference in gun violence prevention, as well as a little bit about your journey to uh, come to this point. So the three of us were in a group chat because teachers are people too. And we were talking shortly after the shooting in Oxford, Michigan at Oxford High School. And just in such disbelief that this has happened again, you know, however many gajillions of shootings later since my school and certainly since Abby's school and Teachers Unify came out of that conversation and it is truly Abby's brainchild that Sari Beth and I just kind of went along for the ride like oh that's such a good idea why didn't anyone think of this sooner except Abby did so I'm gonna toss it to her so she can share her vision for her brainchild. I mean, look, who besides teachers are really the ones at the forefront of this horrible pandemic, this horrible public health crisis that we have? Who besides teachers are on the front lines like we are in this public health crisis that is gun violence? And, you know, we see these school shootings happen over and over. And although there has been progress and and there has been progress, absolutely, we just don't hear enough from the teachers. And teachers have such power in um, organizing, in speaking, in critical thinking. And we're the ones who are taking care of the kids who have experienced gun violence in their families. We're taking care of the kids who've experienced gun violence themselves. We're taking care of the kids who are going through heinous um, active shooter drills with, you know, where they're acting out a real traumatic situation. We're taking care of the kids who are afraid because they see on their phones every day what's happening in America. And they're happening in their communities, happening on a bus, which just happened where their bus driver was shot in the head um, on their, and they're rerouting school buses. I mean, what is going on and where are the voices of the teachers and the educators and how can we help elevate the voices of our colleagues across the country, whether you're um, a, a secretary at a school or a school nurse or a retired superintendent. And we are building a coalition of educators who are saying to us, I've had enough and I want to do something about it. Yeah, brilliant. I I mean, this is not a a topic of conversation around the water cooler or in the teacher's break room at my school. Not that we really have a teacher's break room, but, but this is something that I'm sure everybody thinks about every day. And especially in the, the days after we do a drill, which we do on a regular basis. And I don't think the general public realizes how much a part of our teaching lives this is. Um, Sarah Beth, you want to weigh in? Yeah, so I have been fortunate enough to not have experienced the hell that Abby and Sarah experienced with their students. I teach in New York City at a a public high school, but we felt it too, not the same way, of course, indirectly. 
because we we do active shooter drills and in the midst of a pandemic wearing masks we were hovered in the corner of the room in the beginning of the school year doing our first active shooter drill of the year and my students and i were having a completely frank conversation about well this is probably not the best corner because they can still see us through the window there so mm, yeah i guess we would just jump out the window because it's only two stories and you know better we break our legs and put ourselves at risk and the convert we were having the conversation it just like it was a normal thing to discuss and then i think i find, i think i i broke i broke down and i said and i said wait a second what are we talking about here we're all pl- we're plotting our escape because it feels like something that inevitably could happen one day, especially when you're doing active shooter drills like this and, and seeing these headlines that feels like every day there's another community in some shape or form that's affected by gun violence. And it was so disturbing because kids have just survived, luckily, the global pandemic. They've lost family members, though, I'm sure, seeing people get really sick. And then here we are back at school, which is supposed to be a safe place. And it's not safe. It's not safe. Um, It's safer. I mean, yeah, it's not safe. I was going to say if it's safer than most places. No, it's not. (laughs) School is supposed to be the safest place. And we don't the kids don't feel safe there with knowing that gun violence could happen any day. I think I'll always be in disbelief that we don't live in a society that takes the safety of our children, that that's not the top priority. And I loved um, Thomas Friedman's column this week in uh, the New York Times, and I bet you guys read it too, that America is a nation where everyone has rights, but no one has to take responsibility. Thank you for joining us today on our Parkland Action broadcast of uh, Radio Gag. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. For more about Teachers Unified and to find out how you can get involved, listen tomorrow to Radio Gag on WBAI 99.5 FM at 2.30 p.m. Thank you. You can hear even more of our conversation with Sarah Lerner, Kat Tibbetts, and Teachers Unified on Radio Gag, the Gays Against Gun Show, tomorrow, February 15th at 2.30 p.m. right here on WBAI 99.5 FM. So tell your friends. An extra special thanks to our Radio Gag team, especially Libby Edwards, for introducing and producing these interviews. You are listening to our show, Radio Gag, the Gaze Against Gun Show, here on listener-sponsored, non-commercial radio, WBAI 99.5 FM. So, listeners, your monthly contribution of 5 to $25 can really help keep Radio Gag on the air here at WBAI to keep the issue of gun violence in front of the public and our elected officials. Just go to WBAI.org or call 212-209-2950 and become a BAI buddy in the name of Radio Gag. Thank you. Yeah, that's right. You, When you become a WBAI buddy in the name of Radio Gag, your monthly contribution of 5 to $25 keeps us on the air. So we keep the issue of gun violence in front of the public and our elected officials, and we can produce these specials. And we can tell you even more. We can tell you about gun trafficking in Mexico. We can tell you how gun trafficking affects the human trafficking trade and all of the different topics that we cover on Radio Gag. Just go to WBAI.org or call 212-209-2950 and become a BAI buddy in the name of Radio Gag. And thank you. Next so, up, well, yeah. we have two actions to report on, Sarah. So where are we with that? We have the bloody Valentine's Day action that is um, from GAG here in uh, New York. And then there is also the D.C. action uh, with Manny Oliver and Igor Volsky. Do we have 
either of them calling in yet? Well, I just got a confirmation from Jay, so he should be uh, calling in in just a moment. So we're looking out for that. We want to put him on the air. And then we want to tell you about uh, Shock Market. Um, We'll have Manuel Oliver, father of Joaquin Oliver, who died in the Parkland shooting on our show uh, in the future to talk about shock market. But Manny and Igor Volsky of Guns Down America are in Washington, D.C., and they, they unfurled a banner from the top of a giant crane that is opposite Uh, the White House this morning. So they were arrested, and I believe that they are going to be released soon. We haven't heard anything about um, that uh, we should be too concerned about them. But um, we are looking forward to hearing from them soon. And there is a big, beautiful banner with Joaquin's face and the message that Washington needs to take action to end gun violence. What they really want to do is they want to push our government, our representatives, but even President Biden to declare war on gun violence. And hopefully we will get some word about that war on gun violence in the State of the Union message, which is going to come up this month. I know uh, Manny had already been to D.C. for a while, so this particular action was uh, on the fourth year of um, the Parkland shooting. Um, And one of the, I guess not the headline, but one of the things that we were saying in GAG is that a father never stops fighting. Uh, So this many years later, uh, the Olivers have made it their goal to get this push. So I'm, I'm glad that uh, it's still going on. I hope, out of all the people I've known arrested in D.C. for political things, that it, it, it tends to go fairly quickly, but I'm not sure about this case. Right. Well, we do have Jay Walker with us, and we're going to put him on now. So uh, welcome, Jay. Hi, Sarah. Hi, Ty. How are you? Great. How's, happy Valentine's. Happy Valentine's Day. Or bloody Valentine's Day, as That's we right. like to say. Yeah. Yeah. Would you tell us about the action that Gays Against Guns took? And 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 also, we need to know our listeners need to know that this is a traditional action for for gag. Yeah, absolutely. uh, Ever since um, our first Valentine's Day after gag was formed, which was February of 2017, um, Gays Against Guns has always done an action uh, under the, the heading of um, Bloody Valentine, um, where we call attention to different aspects of the gun violence prevention movement. Um, this year, um, you know, being that um, we're New York-based, um, we are continuing our focus on the um, the New York State Rifle and Pistol Association versus Bruin Supreme Court case that was heard, uh, or the arguments were heard in uh, in the fall. And the uh, Supreme Court is expected to make a ruling uh, this uh, sometime this spring before the end of this year's session. And so what we did today, and um, we went to uh, the brand spanking new Moynihan train station um, uh, here in New York. And we just did a public education piece of, of street theater with a whole bunch of hearts and a little singing our rewritten words to Bloody Valentine updated to reflect its court case. Um, and, uh, you know, it's, it's a new station. Obviously, we're still under COVID, under the pandemic. So, it's, you know, it's not a huge crowded station like you picture a New York train station uh, in the before times, before 2020. Um, but we actually did engage a good number of people here in Penn Station. We didn't get any, any pushback, too much pushback from our security guards. Uh, from the security guards that were here. And um, we managed to get the message out, you know, just um, that uh, folks need to pay attention to the Supreme Court case uh, because if the 6-3 to three conservative majority on the Supreme Court rules in favor of the plaintiff, the New York State Rifle and Pistol Association, which is an affiliate of the NRA, if the Supreme Court rules in their favor, they will not only be gutting New York's safer gun laws, 
by extension, they're going to be gutting every safer gun law in every major city and in every police state across this country. So right now, you know, we see a lot of attention being paid to the Iron Pipeline, which is a campaign that a public education campaign that GAG and other GBP groups started pushing out two or three years ago. And now you're finally we're finally seeing the fruits of that with folks, with politicians and newscasters and stuff using that term. Well, now that they're focused on that, we're looking even ahead because that Iron Pipeline is about you know, gun trafficking of illegal guns or, or guns bought legally in one state traffic illegally into ours or into major cities like Chicago, L.A., et cetera. And the truth is that if the Supreme Court got these, these gun laws in New York, um, the iron pipeline is going to be rendered moot because all of those laws that are in place across the country to, you know, to, to stop people from being able to immediately go out and buy a gun whenever they want to um, are going to be gone. And so there won't be as much of a reason for the Iron Pipeline to exist because people will be able to freely buy guns all over the state of New York. And that is a recipe for disaster. Yeah. Well, even now, uh, the ATF still doesn't have a head, right? And and yeah. because of these backward, uh, this backward legislation that has prevented even research into gun violence, uh, the ATF's records are stored in some kind of a trailer or something. They they don't even have digitized records. Uh, you know, we there's so much that we could do on a federal level. And, you know, the consequence of neglecting our public safety is over 45,000 people dying each year. That's, That's exactly what... Uh, and growing. And growing. It's been growing every year. The first year that GAG came into existence, which was 2016, and we all got together and started doing all the you know researching and finding out as much as we could about the gun violence epidemic in the country. Um, that first year, the number was 33,000 people dead from gun violence, um, and now we're up to 45. It's increased every single year since. More and more bodies, and now the leading cause of death in children. In children. Jay, um, can, did you hear anything about uh, Shock Market? Can you tell us uh, what's going on with uh, Manny and Igor in D.C.? I, I haven't gotten any updates on them. Um, the Shock Market is a great project. We're really excited to be, um, you know, to be uh, a part of that, to be helping to amplify what they're doing, which is calling attention to all of the gun deaths across the country in sort of really serious detail online so that that information is readily available and sort of in a live ticker so that there's a new gun death, the ticker goes up. There's a new gun death, there's 15 gun deaths in one in one hour one day, then the, the, the ticker goes up. It's a really bold plan. It's a really ambitious plan. Um, and the truth is that, you know, like so many things um, in this country, um, a, you know, a lot of the... Uh, a lot of the antagonism toward the gun violence prevention movement, a lot of the resistance to sensible gun control legislation boils down to money. Organizations like, in, like the New York State Rifle Pistol Association, the NRA, the National Sports Shooting Foundation, they are all about increasing the income of handgun manufacturers. They're not about gun safety. They're not about teaching people how to safely store guns or how to safely use guns, which is what the NRA used to be 50 years ago. All that they're about is increasing the sales of guns and making money for gun manufacturers. And that's why I think that the shock market is such a brilliant idea because it calls out that profit motive, which is so, it's so vital to understand. Yeah, boy. Exactly. That's great. All right, Jay. Well, thank you so much for calling in. It's really exciting to hear about the Bloody Valentine uh, action. Do you do you want to do you want to sing a little uh, Bloody um, Valentine to us? I'm a little hoarse because I was shouting at the top of my lungs and singing. I'm not sure how in tune we were. <laughs> All right. Did, did you get a good recording of it? We'll play it on tomorrow's show. Yeah. You may not want to. <laughs> okay thank you thank you all for doing this special program you know um we were we were in the heart center office building in john cornyn's office when the parkland shooting happened in february 14th of 2018 so i, I was really glad that wbai gave us um gave us the time for radio gag to do this special show 
um, this After Parkland show, this Voices from Parkland show. It's, it's, it's so important. So thank you. All right. All right. Well, thank great you, talking Jay. to you. Take care, Jay. We'll see you soon. Take care. <sighs> Our uh, next interview is with Dave Cullen, uh, the author of the New York Times bestseller, Columbine and Parkland, Birth of a Movement. Um, Libby Edwards will uh, does interview him and asks how he got involved in the subject of gun violence. And we have that clip ready to go now. Our next guest is Dave Cullen, the author of the New York Times bestsellers Columbine and Parkland, Birth of a Movement, as well as a Vanity Fair profile of Gabby Giffords. So welcome, Dave. Thanks for having me. Thank you for being with us on Radio Gag. There's so much to cover with your work. So let me just start off by asking how you got involved with a subject of gun violence initially, and then how did it move into your involvement with Parkland and the Birth of a Movement project? Um, Initially, it was totally by chance. You know, uh, when Columbine happened, I lived in Denver, and um, I was a journalist, and so... um, I just got in my car and drove out there when I heard the first reports on local news. And I didn't even think when I got in my car that it would be something significant. I figured um, it was just somebody messing around and nobody would be hurt. Um, So, of course, I was wrong and shocked when I got there. And um, and so I I covered it for um, a web magazine out of California, Salon.com. And, um, you know, they wanted me to just keep coming back. And I mean, it was just such a big story. And I was kind of sucked into it. And then I was frustrated after a while that we weren't really getting a good understanding much of the killers. And so I sort of like doubled down and stayed on it. And, you know, things kept snowballing. I kept, you know, I sort of like got hooked on just sort of trying to understand. And then also really what happened to the survivors. I was so, God, I don't even know what the right word of moved is beyond moved by, uh, but uh, sort of, uh, traumatized too by by the survivors spending so much time with them the first couple weeks and you know i sort of had to know what became of them and um so that gradually turned into a book which took me 10 years unfortunately um to get it all down and by then i just you know i was like in deep um and and then oddly um you know, I kept actually trying to leave this story because it was very dark and I had a couple different uh, breakdowns and um, I really felt I needed to be done with this. But you know, it's one of those things was sort of like a godfather right? keeps pulling you back and pulling you back. And, you know, it really did. And um, I mean, partly because, um, you know, something would happen and, you know, magazines or different places would ask me to cover it. Um, and then I sort of became the TV murder guy after these mass murders on you know, on, on the cable networks and, um, and, you know, talking about it, but the more I talked to school kids, which I, I did a lot of public speaking, I, you know, I just really became more fervent about it too and frustrated that nothing was happening. And, and over time I got more frustrated. I really tried to stay apolitical for a long time and just be the storyteller of what happened. Um, but after a while I felt like, you know, what the hell are we doing? And, you know, we need to be doing something and I couldn't really sort of, morally stay on the sidelines uh indefinitely um and then uh you know when parkland happened uh i i was just actually so overjoyed you know i saw yeah david hogg um on cnn and uh, you know oddly i was you know cnn brought me in to do a segment the morning after and um and i was on right before him and um and at the cnn center uh they have uh, TV monitors in the elevator. And so I was taking the elevator back down to the street and really kind of depressed about, you know, all these things and nothing was changing. And um, on the ride down, I saw David's interview and I was so taken aback. I stayed on the elevator for like six minutes or whatever. I stood on an elevator watching just like with my jaw just sort of dropped. And I got home and I'm like, what's going on? And I, you know, I remember... I was on MSNBC, I think it was the two o'clock hour, because um, I'd watched a lot more of the kids by then. Um, it was really snowballing quickly. And I remember telling, I think, Nicole Wallace um, that uh, these kids are my new heroes. I, I can't even believe what's happening. And, um, and I, you know, I was over by that, but then I was already writing a piece for Politico about how, you know, I think it was the 
began with the question, is this time different? Um, and, and, you know, my answer was like, possibly, and, you know, hopefully it's starting to look that way, perhaps. Um, I've never, you know, I've never seen, you know, in almost 20 years covering these, like I had never seen anything like this, uh, anything remotely like it. Um, like that, I think you're referring to the response of the students being angry. Yeah, yeah, angry, 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 and active, proactive, like demanding something, and um, yeah, like yeah, you know, the version taking to the streets of instead of just sort of like um being incredibly sad and distraught about it, which was the, the typical reaction. And actually, you know, I'd, I'd done a lot of work with psychologists about this. So there's, you know, the phases of grief and phases of trauma that you go through. And they have like jumped, you know, like, like three phases. Like this is not normally a day one, you know, first 24 hour reaction. This is what happens a week to a month down the road to most of the people. And, um, you know, which quickly, you know, jumping a little, had a little when I met them, it was like, because they've already processed, they, they've been through all those other stages with these other shootings. They'd spent their life, they were the Columbine generation who grew up, uh, you know, Columbine happened before they were born. And so they were born into a post-Columbine world. They went to kindergarten or preschool or whatever, their first, you know, school experiences, there were lockdown drills, which was a new thing. You know, the word hadn't been invented before Columbine, but it was for them. And they were freaking angry before it happened. They'd gone through years of anger and frustration. So what used to, you know, be a day one reaction for people of like, uh, they, they'd spend their whole childhood going through those phases. So that was like, they were ready, you know, day one to be like onto the, like doing something about it phase. And um, that was, that was unique. And, um, you know, because I'd had a couple of breakdowns and, and my editor at Vanity Fair is one of my best friends and said, yeah, you know, I know you're not allowed to go back. Um, but would you consider going back <laughs> for us? And <laughs> it's, you know, something your friends can do. I said, okay, uh, I'm, you know, I may be crazy. Uh, you know, my shrink had warned me in dire, you know, warnings what might happen to me if I ever pulled something like that again. But I said, you know, okay, but only to cover this hopeful thing. This is the kids doing something. I am not going down there to cover the killer in any way. I am not going down there to cover the grief and like to document what it's like to live through one of these horrors. Um, because that just gets me, you know, I, I, I go through a verse, you know, a much lesser version of it with them, but it does, it traumatizes journalists too. I'm like, I'm not going there for that, but maybe I could go tell this story. Like maybe that's sort of like psychologically safe for me. So what the hell? And, um, you know, the next day, I think Sunday or Monday, I was on a plane, you know, and it, you know, it, People like Jackie Corrin, you know, spoke up who I'd never heard of and said, uh, oh, yeah, I'm taking the lead on the, the Tallahassee thing. And I was like, Tallahassee? You know, I thought you were going to D.C. I'm like, oh, we're going to Tallahassee first, uh, like, on Tuesday. And I was like, thinking, like, what? And I remember thinking, actually, like, oh, God, these kids have bit off more than they could choose. Like, the D.C. Marsh is already going to be, like, probably way too much. Um, and they're also going to Tallahassee, like, this week, like, Oh my God, you kids need to focus was what I'm thinking. And, um, you know, boy, was, <laughs> boy, was I wrong? Um, you know, and uh, yeah, so then the next day I was down there and meeting with Jackie and like, uh, for their sort of like, I did like the, uh, the sort of organizational event for the, the Tallahassee thing and, you know, off and running. So, uh, I guess that was the, that's the long version of how I got involved, but. And where do you think the uh, March for Our Lives movement is at this point and the kids who started it? How, where is that? They really started something kind of, I don't know the best metaphor for this. Like, you know, the whole gun safety movement, which is, you know, a major rebranding used to call it gun control, which is probably the worst branding of a movement ever because who the hell wants to be controlled? And um, especially like, Gun owners control, you know, people who are control freaks. Or, and I don't necessarily mean that in a bad way, but like, who the hell? Like, I don't want to be controlled. Um, and that's such a terrible way of thinking about it and talking about it. So, you know, finally come to our senses and talk about it, you know, what it is and what comes to be safe. Um, that movement has many different threats going on. Um, and sort of like two of the, the, the two biggest successful ones at the time 
were uh, Gabby Gifford's organizations, Gifford's Courage, and um, Shannon Watts's Moms Demand Action, who had merged with Bloomberg to become Every Town. Those were the two big things, and they were uh, Gabby's was working kind of behind the scenes, which is very important. Uh, and then uh, Every Town was sort of very out front and organizing, and they were coming at it two different ways and being very effective. And I would say the March for Our Lives just added a third, but much more importantly, it was sort of like added rocket fuel to the other two. So Shannon told me that she went from two million uh, moms, who were like sort of like on their list, to six million uh, that year in under year. So like you know, it took like she started the day of Sandy Hook in, in reaction to Sandy Hook. And it took, what was that, like seven years to get to 2 million and then like six months to triple that to 6 million, which by the way, is bigger than the NRA. The NRA boasts about 5 million. Um, so for the first time in, in, in history, there's an organization, a counter organization that's actually larger than the NRA, which, you know, Shannon, you know, attributes completely to the Parkland kids. <laughs> So that's right. You can get the book Parkland Birth of a Movement for your $60 donation or by becoming a WBAI buddy. You can call 212-209-2950. We will have more of Libby's interview with Dave Cullen on tomorrow's show, which will be more Voices from Parkland. To find out more about working with us, please go to gazeagainstguns.net or follow us at gazeagainstgunsny on Facebook and Instagram or gag no guns on Twitter, where you will see photos of our actions and other activities. Also, be sure to check our website to learn more about our meetings and actions. And come to a meeting here in New York. We meet one Thursday a month at 7 p.m. on Zoom. And in Manhattan, we meet in person at the LBGTQ Center on 13th Street. Remember, all are welcome to gag meetings. It's time to finish up the show. Somehow we, want... we fit it all in. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. But we want people to listen tomorrow to more voices from Parkland at 2.30 p.m. And we want you to go to WBAI, uh, give to WBAI.org. And we want you to become a buddy in the name of Radio Gag. And for a $60 donation, you can receive a copy of Dave Collins' wonderful book, uh, Parkland Birth of a Movement. That's a $60 donation, or uh, you can support us uh, with a monthly donation uh, and become a buddy, a BA buddy, in the name of Radio Gag. Go to 212 209 2950 or give to WBAI.org. And we have extra special thanks to Libby Edwards. Uh, for the interview and to WBAI for giving uh, the, the Parkland voices uh, a chance to be heard. Yeah. So don't forget, you can listen to our previous shows anytime on the WBAI website or on any major podcast platform where you can find extended interviews with our guests and listen tomorrow to more voices from Parkland at 2.30 p.m. That's with Sarah Lerner, Kat Tibbetts, and Dave Collin. And thanks to our Radio Gag team. I am Sarah Germain Lilly. Thanks to Libby Edwards. And I'm Ty Kersley. Thank you for listening and have a great and safe day.